0: All right, so we are in the book of John. If you're new here, we've been going through the gospel of John. We're going to keep going through John through all the way to next year. We're going to take a couple breaks, though, uh, from John. So in the summer, we're going to go through the book of Nehemiah. In the fall, we're going to do a countercultural conviction series. But in the meantime, we're in the book of John, and we've been in the book of John for the last few months. And and one of the things, there's actually been two things that have been kind of funny to me about the book of John, and by funny I mean strange, but it feels, it almost feels heretical or something to say strange, and, and, and I mean it in the best way possible, but there's been two things that have been strange to me in, the, in these first eight chapters of the book of John. And they're, it's how the word believe is used, and it's Jesus' discipleship methods. Okay, so the reason why the word believe and how it's used feels strange to me or funny to me is because what you begin to see throughout the the gospel of John is that believe isn't used the way that we use it. In fact, it's not even quite used how it's used in other places in the New Testament. If you go to the book of Acts and you look at someone and they're a believer, they are a sold out follower of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, being a witness to Christ in their world, spreading the gospel. But when you go to John, belief and believe sometimes has this kind of like momentary entrusting or partial entrusting of Jesus, right? Here's an example. In John chapter four, at the end of John chapter four, an official comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, please heal my son. And Jesus goes, uh, he starts to teach him some, some stuff. And eventually Jesus goes, go back home. Your son is healed. And then it says that the official believed Jesus. So he, he headed back home. And as he's walking back home, his servants come out to this official and say, hey, your son's healed, and he's like, well, what time was it? Oh, that's right when Jesus said that, and then it says again that he believed, and it seems to be saying that he believed more deeply and truly in Jesus, okay? So belief in, in John doesn't always quite mean how we use it in our vernacular, or even how the book of Acts uses this word of belief or believer, so that's one funny or strange thing to me in the book of John. The other funny or strange thing to me in the book of John are, are Jesus' discipleship methods, Okay, so when Jesus is looking to make people into disciples of him, followers of him, people that look like him in the world, teach like him in the world, talk like him in the world, when he, his discipleship methods for doing all of that is just strange, right? All the time you get these people that come to Jesus and say, okay, I'm going to follow you and right away what Jesus does is says whatever he wants to them, right? He just like goes, you know what's the real problem with you? This he, he goes, let me, let me tell you what's really going on in the depths of your heart. Jesus' discipleship methods aren't like what the discipleship books tell you to do. Okay, Jesus goes right to the depth of their hearts and he points out what's wrong with what's going on in their hearts and often that it does not get a positive response from people. Often that gets a negative response. Often people end up turning away from Jesus in those moments. Often people end up turning on Jesus in those moments. So Jesus' discipleship methods don't really seem to be building a big church. And these two strange things, belief and Jesus' discipleship methods, will kind of converge in today's message they're going to come together. These two things that are strange to me are going to come together. Here's how. What we're going to see is last week, verse 30, Jesus was talking to groups of people, probably at the Feast of Booths, and he was saying uh, essentially something along the lines of, I- I'm the light of the world. Come to me. And then at, in verse 30, it says that many began to believe in Jesus. Verse 31, the start of the passage that we'll be in today It says that Jesus begins to teach these people that believed in him. But what we're going to see over the course of today's passage, next week's passage, and the week after that's passage, is Jesus is doing his discipleship methods. He is rooting out what's in their heart. He's showing them what they truly believe in. And so, the strangeness of belief kind of being this, at times in the book of John, momentary in trusting in Jesus, Jesus is going to come right at that and say, hey, this is what's really going on in your heart. And what's going to happen with this group of new believers is they're going to turn on Jesus. In three weeks, the third passage that we're going to go through from now. At the end of the passage, they're going to try to kill Jesus. They're going to pick up rocks and try to throw them at Jesus to kill him. When they started off as being labeled as the many who believed in him. And so these things are going to converge for us today. The way that John uses the word belief and the way that Jesus disciples, he roots out what's deep in us. And so this is, this is my plan for today. We're going to read the passage. We're only going through uh, seven verses today. We're going to read the passage. I'm going to recap the passage for us quickly. There's kind of three different things that Jesus says and points to in this passage. So three different ways he instructs us in this passage. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to really hone in on the third thing first, okay? Uh, I'm, again, I'm not a good preacher, so maybe that's a bad idea, but I think the third thing that Jesus says, uh, I think it will help root us in understanding the first two things that Jesus says. I think it will help us to understand the first two things that Jesus says better, okay? So let's hop into our Bibles. We're in John chapter 8. If you're new to the Bible, John is one of the one of the Gospels in the New Testament. The New Testament is kind of like the second uh, portion uh, of the Bible, and it's essentially the New Testament is Jesus, the Lord of all, has come into the world. What does that mean for us? And so we're going to be in John chapter eight, one of the the documentaries of Jesus's life, and we're going to be in verse thirty-one. We're going to read the whole passage together first, or not together, but follow along. The words will be on the screen. So. so verse 31 says this, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus gets up to these new believers and we see Jesus' discipleship methods. We see how he wants to disciple them. And so he gives them some truth. He says, if you want to be a follower of me, you're going to have to abide in my word. You're going to have to abide in Jesus' teaching is what he's saying to them. And then he says, when you do that, what you're going to notice is you have a freedom unlike any freedom you've had before. Their response is hilarious because it's hilarious because they they kind of have this prideful arrogancy and they're going like, we've never been enslaved. And I just go, are we reading the same book? Let's get to the second book in the book that we all read, Exodus, you're enslaved right away. Let's get to some books later. You're enslaved by Babylon. So when they're saying it, what we're seeing is that the Jewish people had this pride, and maybe some of it was rooted in good things of going like, God has made us free, so it doesn't matter if we're enslaved or not. We're free. And so when Jesus says, something's going to make you free, they bristle at it, and they go, no, we're, we're free no matter what. How are you going to make us free, man? And Jesus essentially goes, no, you don't get it. Um, I'm here. I'm here to defeat the true enslaver, which is sin. And then he goes into this third part, this third thing that he says, and that's where I want us to stop and pause here and look at, because I think hearing what Jesus says at this third part will help us understand those first two things better. And here's why. The first two things that Jesus says, some of you in here today, if I just preach them in order like that, what you'll hear is, if you want to be saved, you have to abide in Christ. And you'll hear, I have to do this thing in order to get to God, and that's not what Jesus is saying. Or you'll hear, every time I mess up, every time I sin, God doesn't want me anymore, God doesn't have me anymore, I'm not his anymore, and Jesus is not saying that either. And we see, because of what he's saying in verse 30 uh, in the 35 through 38 essentially what we should be rooted in he says if you're going to abide in me you have to be a son he essentially says if you want to get out of slavery the enslavement of sin the only way out of slavery is sonship so those first two things that Jesus says to us has to be rooted in our identity and what Jesus has done. Jesus makes it clear in this passage, we don't do the freeing; we don't free ourselves. Jesus frees us. We don't become family members on our own. Jesus makes us his sons. And I I keep saying sons there because sons is a metaphor used by Jesus and used by a lot of the New Testament authors to proclaim something for all believers, male or female. And here's what I mean. In that day, the son got the inheritance. The son became the father. The, The son would pass on the father's name. And so the metaphor of being a son applies to male and female alike. It applies to sons and daughters alike in God's family. And we have to be rooted in that identity as sons, as God's kids. If abiding in Jesus is going to make set, sense, and if slavery to sin is going to make sense to us. Because very quickly, both those ideas can, can become this works-based thing or this condemned feeling type thing. And I don't think that's what Jesus has for us. I'm going to read this quote uh, by Kevin DeYoung. I've read it before. It's from his book, The Whole in Our Holiness. I'll read it again because I think it's a really good quote, but I'm going to read it today and I think this will help us to understand and be rooted in our identity in Christ. It should be on the screen. It says this. If I had to summarize New Testament ethics in one sentence, here's how I'd put it. Be who you are. That may may sound strange, almost heretical, given our culture culture's emphasis on being true to yourself but like so many of the worst errors in the world, this one represents a truth powerfully perverted. When people say, relax, you were born that way, or quit trying to be something you're not, just be the real you, they're stumbling upon something very biblical. God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you he's talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. You may wanna read that last sentence again because the difference between living in sin and living in righteousness righteousness depends on getting the last sentence right. God doesn't say, relax, you were born this way, but he does say, good news, you were reborn another way. We are sons, not just some servants for God to use, not just some slaves to arbitrarily follow commands of our master. Jesus has freed us, and not only has he freed us, but he's brought us into the household. He's made us sons. And so as we go back and we look at these first two things that Jesus talks about, we have to be rooted in that identity. And when we're rooted in that identity, what these two things can do for us, instead of being a striving or a condemnation towards us, what we can do is be instructed by Jesus' teaching or be warned by Jesus' teaching. Because any good father instructs his sons and warns his sons. And so that's what we're going to see, Jesus' command to abide, Jesus' talk about how sin enslaves, these things will instruct us and they'll warn us, but then there's another group in here that I think Jesus is trying to talk to. There's some of us in here who have belief, like the sort of belief that they have, a momentary and trusting A belief that when Jesus begins to root things out in our heart, we ourselves turn on Jesus, and that might look like a variety of different things. But some of us have a belief like that. We and and look at them; they, they probably look religious. No one expects to get to this point in their faith. Larry Osborne says this, he says, becoming a a Pharisee is like eating dinner at Denny's. You never mean to, right? No one means to eat dinner at Denny's. I'm sorry if there's a Denny's like franchisee owner, but in here. And some of us have to see what Jesus is teaching and go, have I gotten to this place where I'm a Pharisee and I didn't even realize it? And it is going to be so freeing for you if you just admit that to yourself. Will it be painful? Yes. You're probably going to have to admit to yourself you've been living years and maybe decades for yourself rather than for Christ. But let Jesus root that out of you. Okay? So let's be instructed and let's be warned by what Jesus says here. Let's go back to verses 31 and 32 and let's look at what Jesus says about abiding. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay, let's stop there. The cornerstone to being a disciple of Jesus, right? I think Jesus is handing them kind of like here, here's what you if you're going to follow me, this is what it's going to look like, look like, and it looks like abiding in his word. Abiding in his teaching. Is what he's saying. That word "abide" there—it means what we know it to mean. It means to like to dwell in, to continue, to keep doing. That's what "abide" means. And so Jesus is telling us to abide in His teaching. And so that means we need to stand fast in His teaching. We need to continue to obey His teaching. We need to dwell in His teaching. We need to remain in his teaching. I think all of the things that abide could mean is what we are supposed to do when it comes to Jesus' teaching. This is a cornerstone of being a disciple of Jesus. If you want to know, okay, what do I, what, how, should I, how should I follow Jesus? Abide in his teaching. Abide in his word. Jesus is instructing us on what it means to follow him. When we abide in his word, we are living out who we truly are. Who we are as the church, as believers, as people that that put their faith in Jesus are a group that obeys Jesus' teaching, that seek to listen to Jesus' teaching, that seek to continue to live out Jesus' commands, even when they're hard even when they push against our worldview, even when they change our mind, even when everyone around us says you shouldn't believe that, we as disciples abide in his teaching. We abide in his word. And we don't ever stop. This isn't something we ever graduate from as believers. We don't go, it's not like Jesus says, okay, first step, abide in my word. Okay, good, second step. He's saying, what disciples of Jesus do is they continue in his word. They continue to dwell in it. They continue to listen to it. They continue to obey it. They continue to live it out in creative, Holy Spirit-led ways. That's what disciples of Jesus do. They abide in his teaching. That's what God's sons do. We abide in his son's teaching. how can we let this warn us though? So that, that, that instructs us, but how do we let this warn us? Simply this, some of us have been in this room or in a church or a Christian for a long time and so what we have to ask ourselves when we see Jesus saying abide in my word, we have to go, have I stopped doing that? Have I stopped abiding in his word? Here's a, here's a common way that happens. Sometimes what we do in here Again, I'm trying to get at the religiosity of our hearts. Some of us are really good at reading his word, but not living it. Like we think the key to our faith is just read his word a lot, but we never let it transform our hearts. We never let it change how we exist in the world as people, emissaries in his kingdom. We may have stopped abiding If we read his word but do nothing about it, now a whole bunch more of us, probably we just have stopped reading his word altogether. A whole lot of us go, yeah, I'm I'm a disciple of Jesus, but you don't even listen to his teaching outside of maybe this moment. And let me help you, this is not gonna be great if all the teaching of Jesus you get is from me. Does that mean you've lost your salvation? No, I don't think so. I think it's just you've forgotten your identity. I think you have a God who's saying, remember who you are. Remember that you're my son. My sons abide in my son's words. That's what Jesus, that's how Jesus would warn us in this passage. He wouldn't say, yeah, you're you're out. But he would say, hey, you've forgotten your identity. We can relate to that. There are moments when we forget who we are, and we act like somebody else. For us in this room, our call is to abide in His Word. Young or old, short time believer, long time believer, we are all called to abide in His Word, and when we do that, we'll be set free. Not that we will be set free, but it, it, will look, it will feel like we're set free constantly because we are abiding in his teaching. Jesus has already done the freeing. When you abide in his word, you're just constantly remembered of how he's free, freed you. And he'll constantly point out things that he's set you free from. We abide in his word. That's the first instruction and I think can also be taken as a warning that Jesus gives us. Let's look at this next idea that Jesus talks about in verses 33 and 34. They they start to bristle, like we said, at this idea of being free. They go, I'm already free. I'm a son of Abraham. Verse 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So they go, we're free. And Jesus goes, no, you're not. You're, you're, you're not. And, and I think what Jesus is going, you actually aren't even seeing who the real enslaver is. Right? I think he's going, you think it's Pharaoh, you think it's Nebuchadnezzar, you think maybe it's Rome because of how they're occupying you. That is not the real enslaver. The real enslaver is sin. And so the way Jesus is instructing us here is he is instructing us something important about sin. Sin in its very nature enslaves. Sin itself is an enslaver, and it is the greatest enslaver in our world. Quick definition of sin, because I know some of us in here, what do you mean by sin? Do you mean these things, or those things, or what? Here's a quick definition of sin. I actually encourage you, go to the Bible Project. They do a word series on the Old Testament words used for sin, and New Testament words used for sin. It's three parts. It's 15 minutes total. It will really help you nuance what sin is. But sin, brass tacks is this, when we fail to honor or love God the way we're supposed to, when we fail to love and honor others the way we're supposed to, that's sin. When we fail to do either of those things, that is sin. And what Jesus is instructing us here is that sin is just not naughty things we've done. Right, sin is not just bad behaviors we have. Sin is not just arbitrary things where God was like up there and be like, It'd be funny if we made them do this. It'd be fu- like, th- like, that's not how it works. Sin is anytime things are not the way they're supposed to be. We are supposed to love and honor God. We are supposed to love and honor others. And when we fail to do that, and when we consciously choose not to do that, we are being enslaved by sin. Sometimes unconsciously, sometimes consciously. Sin enslaves. It just does. This is important instruction from Jesus for his children. Some of you might be going, I don't know. I don't know if sin is even real. I don't know if my sin even enslaves me. I can choose what I do or not do. I would love to sit with you. Uh, I'm not kidding. I would love to sit with you and let's do an experiment. Let's talk through what all the habits in your life, and I bet I could pick five that you can't quit in a year. Because I think sin enslaves. And you might know, oh, I know, I could quit those five or I could do that. Then, then I bet if I can't pick five things that you can't quit, some bad habit that even maybe you yourself would admit is a bad habit, even if you could quit those things on your own, of your own strength, I bet there are five things that I would say, hey, that's dishonoring to God. That's dishonoring to others that I bet you can't quit either. And you can't quit them because sin puts chains on us. Sin enslaves us. Sin causes us to keep working into the power of sin. Sin are not just bad things we do. Sin is a power in this world that Jesus wants to defeat. Sin is an enslaver. Now, a a whole bunch of us are freaked out right now, okay? I know a whole bunch of us are freaked out right now because there's two categories in this room as I see it. There are Christians in here who sin. And there are non-Christians in here who sin. And everybody is going, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I think I practice sin. Um, What does that mean for me? A few things to help us. And some of this stuff will also warn us and instruct us. The first is this, is that word practice is in there. Where Jesus said that those that practice sin, this, this, this word is, is like our word for practice, right? We say uh, practice makes perfect, right? I can't tell you how many piano lessons I went to and my mom was like, practice makes perfect. And I said, not if you got gnarled, stubby fingers, mom. Like it just doesn't matter. I'm never gonna do this. <laughs> so I gotta work some things out with my mom. Um, I'm kidding, my mom's amazing. Uh <laughs> Right? We use that word to say, "Hey, when you do something a lot and enough, you master it." Right? What we call uh, sports when we want to become more proficient in the, the thing outside the game is practice. Right? This is what Jesus is essentially saying: is if you abide in sin, you're enslaved to it. If you abide in sin instead of abiding in my word, you you are enslaved to it. And so, some of us in the room, I want you to be encouraged. You. You don't abide in sin. Sure, you sin, but you're not abiding in it. You're not making a practice of it. Yeah, we all fail, and we're all constantly doing it. And even as I get older, as the Spirit speaks to me more, I'm like, man, I didn't even know I was doing that, but I've been doing that for 30 years. And so what I have to be careful, though, is to not see how the Holy Spirit is sanctifying me, how the Holy Spirit is helping me to abide in his Word. So some of us have to see that word practices and realize you're not abiding in sin. But some of us, though, we're still discouraged because you go, I don't know. It feels like I am abiding in sin, Anthony. It feels like I am making a practice of sin. It feels like there's this one thing I just can't get out of my life. There's this one way I treat this one person that I just can't stop treating them that way. And you're going, what does it mean for me? Am I abiding in sin? And I would like to to argue that perhaps that's true. But perhaps you've forgotten your identity as a son. Perhaps you've forgotten your identity as a son. Because sin in its nature enslaves. And so we can be free from sin and yet participate in the power of sin. And I think it can, in a sense, partially enslave us. Okay, here's what I mean. Paul, in Romans 6, he, he, he talks about this idea. Basically, they were going, hey, so you're saying, like, if we, if we sin, we'll understand God's grace more. And Paul's like, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. We don't sin more so we understand more of God's love and grace towards us. No way. And, and Paul begins to say, no, what we do as Christians is we hand our whole selves over. We hand our members, he says, which he means, like, your body, your body parts. You hand your whole selves over to Christ, and you're a slave to Christ instead of a slave to sin. And so Paul has this tension throughout Romans 6 where he's saying to believers, don't give yourself over to sin. Don't let sin be what enslaves you. Let righteousness be what enslaves you, because that's actually freedom. And then right here, in the middle of Romans 6, I'll read Paul is uh, really talking through this idea. Verse 15, we'll read through 18 or 19. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you are present, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Paul notices in the early church, in the believers, in the saints that have the Holy Spirit in them and have believed the gospel that Jesus has lived a perfect life, died a death for their sins and raised from the dead, that for those people there's a tension where often and sometimes hopefully and seldom even more hopefully, we as believers go back to our old ways of life. We as believers have been freed And it's almost like we go back to the old chains that Jesus broke us out of and we put them back on and then try to exist in life with these chains as free people and these chains affect our life. And these chains make us look like enslaved people. Sin in its nature enslaves. Jesus has freed us. As Christians how we can be warned by this is to realize we shouldn't give our members over to sin because sin has this enslaving nature. We have to remember our identity. If we find that we've been abiding in sin, practicing sin, we have to remember that Jesus has freed us and he's brought us into his family. That's the only way out of this slavery. The only way out of slavery is sonship. Our identity is not a group of people enslaved to sin, although we may put the chains back on at times. Remember our identity. Remember we're free. I just have this picture of us sometimes walking around with chains on us and Jesus kind of just being like, bro, those aren't even, like, fastened on. Like, just shake your arms, dude. Like, just get, like, what are you doing? And we're going, no, no, like, this is, this is, ah, I just, I like how they feel. You know, like, that's, that's some of what our relationship with Jesus looks like, and that's some of what our relationship with sin looks like. Don't forget who you are. You're free. You're a son. Jesus has freed you. We don't go back to that mess. And when we do, just shake it off and run to Jesus. And remember your freedom that's found in him. So Jesus is saying a lot of things here to this group. He's beginning to root these things out. And they're they're starting to get kind of like freaked out. Obviously, they're, they're starting to get, what we'll see in the next passages. they're kind of getting madder and madder at him. And I think why they're getting freaked out is because they thought they were following one sort of Jesus. And I don't know quite what sort of Jesus they thought they were following, perhaps a revolutionary of some sort, I don't know. But then now Jesus is presenting himself as a different sort of Jesus. And they're going, what you're saying is, Jesus, that you are the very power of God. They were fine following Jesus and being like the hope of the world, the light of the world, the one that would free Israel from Rome. They were fine following Jesus to that point. But now Jesus is going, I'm actually the very power of God in the flesh. What Jesus is going to say in two passages, he is God in the flesh. And so they are getting freaked out and they're going, how could you be the power of God How could you be the one that frees us from sin? And this bothers them deeply because he's not the person they want him to be. He's not the person they expect him to be. But we need to realize as sons that Jesus is the power of God. And they needed to realize that Jesus was and is the power of God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh, but God in the flesh manifests his power. Right? Do you remember? I'm going to use a, an illustration from the Old Testament that's a real thing that happened to help us understand that the power of God was walking in their midst. A lot of times, how God interacted with his people in the Old Testament was he just did stuff. And they just, well, that's God. That's him. He's doing things. Do you remember how God freed the people of Israel from Egypt? It came to a head. God was sending all these plagues, trying to convince Pharaoh's hard heart, don't keep enslaving my people. And so he sends one last plague and he says, listen, it's going to kill every firstborn in all of Egypt. Every firstborn is going to be killed in Egypt. And Pharaoh in his hard heart says, I don't care. One man's sin affecting everyone. Meanwhile, what God tells his people is what you can do is sacrifice the lamb, spread its blood on your doorpost, and you'll be free from this plague of death to all the firstborns. And that night, the people of Israel were freed from their enslavement. They had been in bondage to Pharaoh. They had been working as slaves to Pharaoh. And that night, they became free people. And they saw the power of God that night. What this group doesn't understand, and sometimes what we don't understand, is Jesus showed us that same power. Jesus showed us that He is that God. But He did it in a way we just don't expect, and they didn't expect. Instead of causing a plague of death to someone who deserves it, Pharaoh, Jesus let a plague of death consume him. He let him experience the death of the firstborn. Him being God's first and onlyborn son. And it was his blood that was spread not on doorposts, but on crossposts, so that we would be free. So yes, Jesus sets up this great big idea that sin enslaves, but he says, I'm the one that's going to free you from it. It's going to be my blood, and it's going to be my death. That's how we know we're sons, is if you believe that. Because Jesus didn't just die, he resurrected. He resurrected, he came back to life because he wants to show us what the sort of life he has for us for eternity, forever with him. It's one with no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, where we can be free to be who he really made us to be. And so church, when we see these ideas of Jesus abiding, we have to realize that Sons abide in their father's teaching. Sons abide in the son's teaching too. And the only way out of slavery is sonship. So here's what some of you, some of you need to hear this today. Follow Jesus today. Begin to follow him. What does that look like? Look at his words Follow him. I believe that you can commune with Jesus. Like I think you can actually talk to him and his spirit will speak to you in different ways. Probably primarily through his word. But he will speak to you and guide you and you can follow him and be a disciple of him. Trust Jesus with your heart. Trust Jesus with your life. And let him root out what's in there that you want to keep in there. Let him root that out. And then others of us in the room need to hear this. You have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten that Jesus has freed you. You've grown accustomed to the chains that you were wearing. And you want to keep wearing them even though Jesus has snapped them off. May we not forget that he has freed us and made us sons. May we abide in his teaching. May we give ourselves wholly to him and not to sin. May we be that church. Amen? Let's pray. God, help us. God, thank you for freeing us. God, thank you for even showing us your power in any way, at any point in history. We don't deserve it. God, help us to be a people that abide in you. God, help us to be a people that don't put on the old chains of sin, even though we're free. God, convict some of us in the room right now. I know that there's some of us in the room that have been too religious, that have worked our way to you or have some sort of power in religion or whatever it might be, where we're not following you, we're following you on the side. May we not be that people. May you convict us. May you stop us from being that people. God, thank you for freeing us. God, I pray that each and every person in this room continues or for the first time makes a practice of giving them their whole selves to you. Help us to turn from the sin, help us to turn from the chains of sin and turn to you, God. Help us to remember who you've made us to be. Help us to know who you want to make us to be if we've been far from you. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.